Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Have a seat. Um, we're going to get started again in our series um, in 1 Corinthians. If you're there, you can turn to chapter 14. That's where we'll be. Um, I conveniently stopped right before one of the most controversial parts of that chapter last week, which we're going to dive into this week. And um, just so you guys know, um, and uh, you know, our, our series has been called The Cross because Paul is writing and he's basically telling us that it's all about the cross of Jesus. It's what Jesus has done for us. Um, it, it's us not wanting to pick up our cross and follow Christ. We want life. We don't want to give up life. And Christ gave up his life for us. And so Paul is writing to this first Corinthian church. Again, this church in Corinth, very similar to our culture today, the church in Corinth um, would have had all the same problems and issues. There was a temple to um, one of the Greek gods, Aphrodite, that uh, was thousands of prostitutes, and you would go there to have your fun and have a good time, and, and that's kind of the way that Corinth was. And so when Paul went there, and it was a major trade city, and as he planted this church, he was trying to get them to see that they needed to give up their life if they were going to follow Christ. And he was trying to get believers to see the places they'd gone off track because he had heard news that they were going off track from the teachings of Scripture and from the things they had modeled. And so Paul is writing this letter back. He's laying the foundation for Christ. He's giving them some challenges. He's answering some of their questions. And as we wrap up the book, you have to keep in mind what Paul says in the book, and that is the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, the idea that we should give up our rights, we should lay down our lives for people who don't deserve it is just foolish to people who are trying to get life and trying to earn life. But it's God's power to us who understand that being saved is actually surrendering your life. And so that's what Paul is writing about. We've looked through different passages, we've Gone over the, the list of scriptures that are here. This thing is not working. You're going to have to keep moving, Kanye. Um, and so the titles are there. You can look those up. They're on our podcasts online. Uh, last week, we talked about building up the church, and Paul talked about what that looked like. We skipped the end of 14. We did 15 a couple of weeks ago, which we're going to look at briefly today in clarifying the gospel. But this week, we want to look at the idea of speaking and being silent. So speak and be silent. There's no more controversial thing happening in our culture right now than this. Because some dude bought Twitter. And because some dude bought Twitter, we're in a complete meltdown over who gets the right to speak and who gets the right to censor and who does, like, that's, we are, literally. It's crazy. And we've been in that meltdown for a while. But literally, it's this idea of, do I have the right to speak? Should I be silent? Should I speak? Do you ever struggle with that on a daily and weekly basis? Like if you have relationships, you know this is true. And most of the time, if we're really honest with ourselves, it's just easier not to say anything and just let people self-destruct. It really is. It is often so much easier just to keep our mouth shut, shut and not say anything and let people go off a cliff and be like, mm, too bad for you, but I'm doing pretty well. But that's the opposite of what God did. God sent his word, he sent prophets, he sent angels, he sent all the, he, content, he sent his own son to try to tell us, I'm not being silent. Romans 1 says, even creation itself 
screams out that there is a creator who's tinkering with things and has made the universe. And the more we figure out about the universe, the more we realize we don't know and how amazing it is we even are alive and that we haven't been destroyed yet, right? I mean, it is. It's absolutely amazing that life even exists. And as we go out into the universe, it gets even more amazing. Of all the conditions necessary for you and I to be here right now, to have minds that think and to breathe and speak, it's amazing. The animals don't even speak. Why do we as humans get the right to speak? Well, God tells us that's the way he designed it. And so we want to dive in and look at what this looks like. And if we're honest, we want others, we want God and others to speak when we want to listen. And we want everybody else to listen when we want to speak. Right? I don't want anybody to tell me when I should be quiet, when I should speak, what I should do. Like, I have the right to say whatever I want, whenever I want. Which actually isn't free speech. That's stupid speech, to be honest. Right? You are free to say whatever you want. You are not free from the consequences of your comments. We saw that at the last major movie awards ceremony, right? Like, you are free to joke and say whatever you want, and other people are free to suffer the consequences of challenging you to your face, literally, of what you said. You see, and that's the beauty of the gospel, is that God spoke everything into existence. He spoke his plan. He spoke his truth. And then he sent his son to come speak to us and then pay the price that we deserve for our comments, for us speaking against him. There is no other God like that. There is no, it, either the Christian message, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is true, or it is the first one you should dismiss and we should be pitied. Like, we should be pitied that we believe this stuff. Like, we should be like, oh, those poor Christians. They, oh, those morons. Paul says. So last week, we looked at this. If any person speaks in another language... There should be only two, or at the most three, each in turn, he goes on to say. And someone must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, that person should keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged." And we looked at this last week. He's saying, look, there's an evaluation process. The Bible says that we are all prophets. Paul said, as we looked at last week, that he desires that all of us would prophesy, that all of us would speak the truth about God. That's what prophesy means, by the way. It's not future telling, right? It's just speaking the truth about God. He's like, I wish all of you would prophesy more and more. He even says, I wish that you would speak 10,000 prophetic true words from God's word than speak one word in another language. That's what Paul says. Like if you do the odds on that, that's 0.0005% in another language and 99.9995% speaking God's word. That's the drastic difference. And he says, be silent, speak. Paul's saying there are rules that we need to govern ourselves by. The church is not a free speech zone where you get to just say whatever you want unchallenged. You should be challenged and there should be an evaluation process and that evaluation process should be based on the word of God. And he says, the reason for this is because we want everyone to be encouraged. And then he says, and the prophet's spirits are under the control of the prophet's. 
Again, who is a prophet? A prophet is someone who speaks the truth about God. So if someone speaks something untrue and you speak to them the truth of God to their untruth, you just became a prophet, whether you wanted to or not, by definition. He goes on and he says, since God is not a God of disorder, but grace. And here's the key. He says, this whole idea of speaking and being silent, when should I speak? When should I be spot silent? He said, it's all about order. Now, if there is something we can't stand more, it's when people get our orders wrong, right? It drives us batty. When people, I told you exactly, and I didn't get it. You weren't listening. And God has an order to to creation. He has ordered things accordingly. A, A matter of fact, we'll see in a minute, Satan himself got angry and fell away from God because he couldn't stand God's order. He couldn't stand that God would not make him equal to the Trinity. And he couldn't stand that God created mankind and then the Bible says put men above angels to judge angels. Oh, that really ticked him off. He could not stand the order of God. He could not stand how he was created by God. I have the right to tell you how I was created. I have the right to get what I want. Is this not a debate we're hearing in our culture today over and over again? And so we have to be very careful how we look at this because he says the peace that you have in your heart and the peace of our world depends on God's order being followed. And if you go off that order, it is a sign that something's amiss. That's a sign that something's messed up. He goes on and says this in Jeremiah. Jeremiah talks about false prophets because Paul is saying, look, if you want order and you want peace, there are going to be people who don't even realize it, but they're bringing disorder and they're trying to bring a false peace. Jeremiah 5.30 says, a horrible, terrible thing has taken place in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own authority. My people love it this way or love it like this, but what will you do at the end of it? In Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah was giving a prophecy that none of us would like. Jeremiah was basically saying, hey, you know this war that's going on with Ukraine and Russia? Yeah, the United States should surrender to Russia. Just for 70 years, and then God will come back and deliver us. It'll be fine. That was Jeremiah's message to his people. It was, I know you're in your nation, I know you're in the promised land, but I'm telling you, God is going to come and devastate it, and I'm asking you right now, God is asking you to surrender to Babylon because God has raised up this king to be a punishment to you. You are to surrender to him and trust that God will resurrect you. Oh, except not the generation that surrenders because you're all old, and you'll all die in captivity, but you're getting the next generation ready. Will you do it? Will you say what's true and do what's right and do what God says, not for yourself, not for your own benefit, but because God has ordered it that way and he's going to raise up someone after you? That's the gospel message. And Jeremiah, the people of Jeremiah's day hated Jeremiah for this. And Jeremiah says, you all want to rule by your own authority. I'm my own God. I tell you what goes and what doesn't go. I'm the one. And then he says, it's even worse. The priests and leaders are the one encouraging you to think that way. You can have your best life now, all about you, all about what you want. No need to die for sinners. No need to lay down your life for the church like we talked about last week with building up the church. No need. You just live for you. You do you. 
Try to just have a peaceful life and exist for a few years and die and good luck. Jeremiah goes on to say, they've treated my people's brokenness superficially. He's talking about the leaders. Claiming peace, peace, when there is no peace. He goes on in 8.11 and repeats it. They have treated superficially the brokenness of my dear people, claiming peace, peace, when there is no peace. There, there is not a peace without Christ. If we keep giving people a false sense of peace without Christ and his church, we are not being good prophets. We're being false prophets. And there are a lot of Christians who want to run around and we're giving people this idea of a false speech. We're speaking to things without God's word and we're being silent on things we should speak to. We're going to see in a minute, it's costly to believe God. You'll be hated. The first group of people that actually surrendered and went to Babylon were hated by the other Jew, Jewish people, Israelite people. They were despised. And when they, the rest didn't submit, God came in and they were slaughtered, and it was awful. And they tried everything they could do to keep the peace. They made a treaty with Egypt, which they were never supposed to go back to Egypt. They went and made a treaty with Egypt. When the king of Babylon found the treaty, when he destroyed Egypt, oh, he was really ticked off now. There was no mercy for God's people because you went behind my back and lied and told me you weren't going to get enemies, and now I see you did. It goes on and says this, captivity versus wilderness, captivity versus promised land. The reason I have that up there is we talk about this often in our church. Where you believe you exist is how you will order your life and what you'll strive for. Do you believe you're wandering in the wilderness of life? Do you believe you're held captive in this life? Or do you believe that we live in the promised land because we live in the United States of America? Because which of those you believe is going to determine how you prophetically respond and speak God's word in the world? See, most of us, if we're really honest, we want to believe we're in the promised land, that this is the best nation that ever existed. It's awesome. That Listen, it's a great nation. I love my nation. God had me bore, be born here, and I pray for my leaders, and I participate in the system and vote and challenge leaders when I get the opportunity. Like, I, I do all of those things. Because that's where God's put me. But I hope that someone in another country would also do the same. But this is not the promised land. Otherwise, Jesus doesn't need to come back. We just need to get America better and then just be like, hey, God, look how awesome we are. You come down, you can inhabit our space we made for you. And there are people that actually kind of believe that in practical life and belief. It doesn't mean we should not try to make a good place and uphold God's laws. It's just if you believe in that promised land mentality, you're going to be miserably disappointed, especially as you get older and your life falls apart because you're old. I'm seeing it in my own life. I can't do the things I used to do. I forget things that I used to remember. Like your, your life begins to go out of control and you're like, this is definitely not the promised land and this is definitely not the promised body that God talks about. I need a new one. So then it's wilderness or captivity, if we're really honest. Okay, so do you just believe you're wandering in the wilderness and you're just kind of waiting and, you know, you're wandering because of sin and 40 years? Like, I would say, no, we're not in the wilderness. We have a clear path. We have a clear destination. God is coming back. I would argue that we actually should be captivity theology people, like Jeremiah with Babylon. 
That my citizenship and my home is in heaven, just like Christ was, and like Christ left heaven to come and be our slave, to die for our sins, he has asked us to stay on this earth, being captive in these dead bodies, this one that I'm talking to you with, being captive in these dead systems that we live in, we're captive to it, but we're not slaves to that, we're slaves and servants unto God. And our job is to point people to that you can surrender your life on this side of eternity. You can surrender to Babylon. You can do those things. You can also fight against Babylon. But you don't get out alive. You are held captive by death in this life, and you better hope there's a different body in a different promised land. And so we just kind of teach captivity theology, the willingness to say, you know what? God raises up nations and tears down nations. I'm not trying to create a new promised land here from God. I'm actually doing things, and the Bible says that that Jesus is using what I'm doing in heaven to build the new promised land, to build the new Jerusalem, that he's going to come back and like squash everything and put a new earth on. So so I'm sending things ahead. I'm making investments ahead because I can't keep anything here because I'm just a slave and it all gets stolen. See, that's what Jeremiah is talking about. And Paul, when he leans into this next passage of what he's talking about, of being silent and speaking and God having an order, if we don't understand God's order and we just slightly go off by the false prophets who say, peace, peace, do this, do that, you can have what you want, you will end up in a miserable, terrible place lacking peace. Jeremiah goes on to say, but the Lord said to me, these prophets are prophesying a lie in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to speak, command them or speak to them. They are prophesying prophesying to you a false vision, worthless divination, the deceit of their own minds. These are the prophets of Israel. These are the prophets of God's people, the church, his ecclesia of that day. Not the church as we know it, but but the people of his day. And Jeremiah writes this. What you're doing just doesn't, it's It's worthless. It looks like it's powerful. You guys have a nation. The temple's built. There's all kinds of sacrifices being made. Great. Man, it looks like things are going great. He said it's worthless. He goes on and Ezekiel says this, her prophets plaster with whitewash for them by seeing false visions and lying divinations. And they say, this is what the Lord says when the Lord has not spoken. See, we better be careful with this is what I think about what the Lord says. Is that really what the Lord says? Micah, at the end of the Old Testament, says this. This is what the Lord says concerning the prophets who lead many people astray, who proclaim peace when they have food, when they have food to sink their teeth into, but declare war against the one who puts nothing in their mouths. Read that again. And kind of sit on that for a minute. The prophets who lead my people, who proclaim peace, wealth to you, peace to you, when there are my people around the world that have nothing. That should break our hearts. That should kind of sting a little bit. It should change our behaviors and how we see the world and what we're trying to get versus what we're trying to live out so that we can give. Micah says that, which is just heartbreaking. And you say, well, yeah, all that false prophet stuff, I mean, that was Old Testament, right? Like, that was, that was before Jesus and before the New Testament. Jesus. 
Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. False messiahs and false prophets will rise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. There will be great wonders and signs done by false prophets. So be careful that you're believing God's word, not some sign or wonder or result you're seeing. Be careful. He says there'll be great signs and wonders. I mean great. That you'll be like, there's no way that couldn't be God. No, it's not God. Luke says this, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets, Jesus says. Welcome to social media. How many likes can I get? How many people can I get to like what I say and agree with what I say and to build my little kingdom and my little camp that goes against that other kingdom? How about you be about God's kingdom? I guarantee if you're about God's kingdom, no one will really like you much. Because you'll tell everyone they're perishing without Jesus and you'll call everyone to be obedient to God's word and everyone will be challenged by God's word, including you. Now, does that mean we walk around and try not to be liked? No, that's just being a jerk. Don't be a jerk. Like, we're to be kind, but we need to be people, especially you that are young. Like, you guys need to speak out lovingly, gently, humbly, but truthfully. And it will cost you, I promise. It will cost you relationships. Jesus said, your own family will hate you if you follow me. It's costly. He goes on to And you say, okay, well, that was Jesus, and Jesus hadn't died and been resurrected yet. Then when Jesus died and resurrected and the Holy Spirit came, then we got rid of the false prophets, right? Peter, the leader of the early church. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who who bought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. 1 John 4 says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to determine if they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Like, he just lays it out there. Like, all through Scripture, over and over again, he's like, look, just like Paul in chapter 14 says, look, we need to evaluate what's being said and be careful what we're listening to and say, is that really God said? Did God declare? Did the Lord say? Because I'm telling you, each one of us, myself included, I have unhealthy, selfish desires that I want God to make right. I want him to to say, yes, I like that, you can have it. (laughs) Versus, no, that's not good for you, you can't have it. But they can have it, yeah, but it's not good for you, you can't have it. Like, so we have got to know how to speak, know how to be silent, and the only way to do that is to believe God's word, to know his word, to know what we're speaking, and to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit in obedience to his word. There's no other way. One of the ways you've got to learn to do this, I'm going to give you some theological terms this morning. If you have a note card, you can write them down. I normally don't do a lot of that, but you need to know this stuff. So here's one of them. Exegesis versus eisegesis. Okay? Exegesis versus eisegesis. That's not Isis, by the way. That's not the same thing at all. Okay, exegesis is the idea of interpreting or understanding the scriptures, what God is speaking, what God's silent to in the scriptures, 
by exposition or by explanation of a text based on careful, objective analysis of the text itself, its context, and the rest of Scripture. The word exegesis literally means to lead out from the Scriptures. It means you understand the Scriptures, you understand God's character, and you lead out to tell people, to interpret, to tell, based on your Spending time with Jesus, understanding him, spending time, and sit, okay, eisegesis is based on subjective, non-analytical reading. The word eisegesis literally means to lead into the scriptures. It means you're putting your interpretation, what you think on it. Listen, we have got to stop saying, this is what I think the Bible says. Stop it. This is who I think God is. Stop. It's who God is. It's what God said. That doesn't mean you have to be a jerk and be arrogant and be like, God says. No, just say, you know, the Lord says, my, my God says. Like, we've got to stop using apologizing speech. Well, I think. No, don't think. No. That's exegesis. Eisegesis is when you say, I think, you're literally like inserting yourself into it. Stop. What does the scripture say? This takes work to be exegesis. It's going to take some discipline. It's going to take some time. you got to grow in that. Eisegesis is a piece of cake. It's where you just flop open the Bible and you're like, oh, that verse, yeah, I'll take that completely out of context. That's for me today. I can do that just because it says right there. See, the Bible says so in one verse. That's ex- Listen, that's our whole culture today. Everything is sound bites. Everything is stealing someone's sound bites. People will even piece together videos taking words and skipping words and then piecing them together to make people say things they didn't say. And we believe it. We don't even do the research to say what was the whole context of what that person's statement was. Oh, they must have sent it. Oh, that tweet must be true because this person's telling me it's true and I listen to Fox News or I listen to CNN so it must be true. How about you do some exegesis? How about you take some time to like lean in and Figure it out before you just run your mouth and speak when you should be silent or be silent till you know and then speak boldly. We Listen, Christians should be the leaders of this and instead we've gotten sucked into the eisegesis which is we're constantly speaking into the Bible and saying, well, culture says this so we're going to speak that into the Bible instead of saying, what's the Bible's culture say? And we can all be guilty of it. We can all be guilty of it. And Paul and John and Peter and all of these are like, that's what the false prophets do. The pro- false prophets do eisegesis. They do not do exegesis. First Corinthians. When I read this, I'm going to let you sit on this for a minute. I'm going to read it and I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to let you sit on these words. And you decide what Paul, who is inspired by God to write the scriptures, is saying to us. Very controversial topic. He says... As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be submissive as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church meeting. Did the word of God originate from you, or did it come to you only?
Hard text. One that we've compromised a million times, that we just gloss over this. We try to answer this by eisegesing and putting our thoughts in and our cultural interpretations into instead of exegeting the whole Bible of how does this make sense when God has said that we are all equal in Christ. One of the popular proof texts, because I believe this is actually, we should practice this in the church. I'll explain myself in a minute because I, this verse has been used to do nothing but belittle women, especially in the ancient church and the Catholic church when it got power. It was used as a tool. You see, do this. Isn't it interesting that we love to talk about how this verse talks about women? What does this verse say that husbands should be able to do? Exegesis. Husbands, do you know how to exegesis? Men, do you know how to exegesis? Or are you just going to read what you want into the passage Do you look at that passage and say, oh my goodness, there's a serious responsibility I have to answer my bride's questions with the word of God and to know the word. And I'm telling you, when you don't do that, it is devastating to a family. It is devastating to a relationship. I've seen it in my own life. Susan was the one that had the great idea of reading the Bible every night to our kids. I wish I came up with that. I think about that to this day and think, man, I am so glad that God gave me a wife that was like, look, this is what we're going to do. You know? It's like Moses with his wife when she does the circumcision and throws it at his feet and be like, y'all would have been dead, but I just saved your lives. Because you didn't take responsibility. And then she still had to listen to him and follow him in the wilderness and go through. Like, seriously. Like, see that? We look at this passage and we put it on women. This should be on men. Men, you should be the ones that know how to exegete the word of God. You should know this word and handle it well. We should be teaching it to our young men so they know how to care for people, how to challenge people, how to die to themselves, how to live for Christ. Instead, passages like this, we just slam on women so that men can get by with whatever they want. Be careful. One of the passages that, oh, and by the way, being submissive does not mean weak. It means putting your will under someone else. That's what Jesus did. Jesus came and he submitted himself to all rulers and authorities, the scriptures say, so that he could die in our place. He submitted his earthly will to follow the Father's plan of the heavenly will so that we could have life. That's what husbands and that's what men are supposed to do in a culture. And whenever men don't do that, don't be surprised when it goes badly in a culture. There is a reason why so many in the African-American community, especially young males, end up in prison. It's because there are not fathers in the home. It's the number one common denominator. We have eviscerated men and we have not held them responsible to what really matters. Two words, another couple theological terms you need to know as we go through this is complementarianism versus egalitarianism. Big theological words. Complementarian basically means this. It means that men and women were created different, they have different roles, different responsibilities, and they complement each other. But a woman does not have the same rights as a man, and the man does not have the same rights as a woman as it relates to exercising speech and what to do in the body of Christ, that we have different roles. Egalitarianism says that we're all equal, there's no longer any boundaries. 
Everybody's equal. So women can be pastors, women can be leaders. Across the board, equality. Now that sounds great. The problem is we're going to read some scriptures that if you believe that fully, I don't know how you get through these scriptures. Because here's the number one scripture people use to argue egalitarianism versus complementarianism. This is the verse. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ like a garment. There is now no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. This is the number one verse that people use to argue that everybody's equal. No no difference between Jews and Greeks. But it's interesting. The same people that will argue that there's no difference between male and female will argue that the races are different and we need to encourage everyone's separate culture. Your argument doesn't stand up then. You need to go around and tell people there is one culture and only one culture and you can't have a different one. Which isn't biblical because we know around the throne there are going to be all different ethnic groups, ethnos, that we're going to see around the throne of God and say, look at that ethnic group. Look at that. We're going to be able to distinguish different ethnic groups at the throne of God. When When this is written, listen, if there's no male nor female, then transgender pastors are fine. Transgenderism isn't wrong because there's no male nor female. It doesn't matter. There's no need to evaluate your culture because your culture's fine. doesn't matter if it's Jew or Gentile. If you go through and you look at this, it's what Paul is talking about in this passage, if you do good exegesis, is Paul is saying you are not saved because you're Jew or because you're Greek. You're not unsaved because you're Jew or you're Greek. You're not better because you're male or female. You're not more saved and more whatever. That's, if you look, he's talking about Abraham's seed. Abraham being the, the promised one, and he's saying Christ is the new promise. There's still an order to things. There's still a biblical order. Why? The same guy that wrote this is the guy we just read who said in his churches and in all the churches, women shouldn't speak. So is Paul a liar? Is he like schizophrenic? Or maybe we've misinterpreted this passage for the one in Corinthians and all the ones we're getting ready to read. But before we read them, let me give you a list of some incredible women. Eve, Job's daughters, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, Jochebed, Miriam, Rahab, Deborah, Ruth, Hannah, Bathsheba, Esther, Mary, Elizabeth, Mary, Martha and Mary, Mary Magdalene and Phoebe. Incredible women. Women who served God, gave their life, were a part of terrible circumstances and submitted their life to God and submitted their life to their families and living for God. Deborah, for example, is the one people loved. Oh, Deborah was a leader. Deborah never prophesied in the temple of God. She always was under a juniper tree. And the men would come to her. She didn't go to them. She carried no authority except what the men gave her, and she told them they were all weenies and wimps because they wouldn't step up and fight the battle. And then she looked at him and said, oh, and by the way, a woman, to your disgrace, is going to get credit for winning this battle because y'all are wimps. That was Deborah's message. 
If we could find female leaders today that would have that message for men, praise God. But most of them are just raising up women as women are at everything. Call out the men. Deborah said, I don't want credit. I don't want to lead. I don't want to have to Senator Juniper Tree and tell you guys what to do. But you won't listen to God. So what other option do I have? She didn't go try to overthrow the temple. Esther, another example. Everybody's like, oh, Esther, Queen Esther, she was bold. She was raped to get to her position of authority. She was then like, had to risk her life to go into the king and almost died to go into his presence. She didn't walk in there and be like, I am Esther queen and you will do what I tell you to do. That is not the way Esther approached the king. These are incredible women that humbly served God and submitted their lives to God. I could go on and on. But in all of these cases, most of these women were raised up because men blew it. Even Mary, the mother of Jesus, was raised up to have Jesus because Adam was a moron. We're going to read that in a minute. It was his fault that we die. All he had to do was look at Eve and go, no. That was it. And we wouldn't be in this mess. But because he said yes, God had to send another Adam to die in his place. Oh, and by the way, he did it through the woman. goes on to say this in Proverbs. You want to talk about women. Read Proverbs 31. It says this, who can find a capable wife? She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts her and he will not lack anything good. She rewards him with good, not evil, all the days of her life. That's not five years, 10 years. Well, 20 years, I'm out of here. All the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the merchant ships bringing her food from far away. She rises while it's still night and provides food for her household and portions for her female servants. She evaluates a field and buys it. She plants a vineyard with her earnings. She draws on her strength and reveals that her arms are strong. This woman is out in the world making money. This woman is out into the world having an impact in the culture and the people around her. She is making sure her family's going with her. Can you imagine like her entourage of kids coming with her? We're like, I'll show you how to trade in the marketplace. Here's how you do wool and flax. Here's how you plant a vineyard, kids. Like, where's dad? We find out he's in the city. He's in the city speaking and arguing. We, we look at later that he's at the city gates, which means he was a protector of the city, guarding the gates. So this isn't a woman sitting at home with a dress on and being like, oh, I just bring you by your slippers. That's not who this woman is. That's who we made her to be. That's not who, just as her arms are even strong. That means her husband's like, ooh. My wife scares me with her strength. I remember when I learned that the hard way, tickling her. She kicked me so hard. She said, I don't like being tickled, don't tickle me. And I'm like, well, I like tickling people. So, ah, woo, I don't tickle anymore. Not a good idea. She's really strong. It goes on to say this. She sees that her prophets are good and her lamp never goes out at night. She makes a profit. She's out working. She knows how to do accounting, so it's profit, not like false profit. It goes on to say, she extends her hand to the spinning staff and her hands to the, hold the spindle. Her hands reach out to the poor and she extends her hand to the needy. She's not just concerned about her own kids. She wants to be sure that others are cared for. 
She is not afraid of her household when it snows, for all in her household are doubly clothed. She makes her own bed covering. Her clothing is from fine linen and purple. Her husband is known at the city gates where he sits among the elders of the land. Doing what? Speaking. She doesn't get to speak. He's out speaking. Within the body and within the church. She's out talking a lot out into the world. She's talking business. She's talking buying a field. She's doing real estate. But in the church, she knows how to come under the authority of her husband and allow him to do the talking. It goes on and says, she makes and sells linen garments. She delivers belts to the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. And she can laugh at the times to come. This woman's hilarious. She's got a sense of humor. She opens her mouth with wisdom and loving instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the activities of her household and is never idle. Her sons rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also praises her. Many women are capable, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. Give her the reward of her labor and let her works praise her at the city gates. Not she's praising herself at the city gates. Everybody's talking about her. She doesn't even need to talk about herself. She's so faithful. None of you women can measure up to this. This is the perfect woman Solomon's writing about. That's why you need Jesus. That's why there's grace. And men, stop looking for a woman like this. Solomon looked for a woman like this. Solomon wrote Proverbs. You want to know how many women it took for him to figure out he wasn't going to find a woman like this? 1,000. 700 wives, 300 concubines. After 1,000 women, Solomon realized, that's the ideal woman, and I can't find her. No, because we're all sinners and we're all a mess. That's why men have to give our lives to our wives, not expect them to do everything. Isaiah says this about this idea of when to speak and be silent and how do we know, especially among the sexes? He says, observe this, the Lord, the God of the hosts, is about to remove from Jerusalem and Judea every kind of security. I will make use of their leaders and the unstable will govern them. In other words, because the men won't lead, I'm going to raise up young people and they're going to have to do the hard work because men won't do it. The people will oppose one another, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. Youth will act arrogantly toward the elder and the worthless toward the, the honorable. The look on their faces testifies against them and like Sodom, they flaunt their sin. They do not conceal it. Woe to them for they have brought evil on themselves. He's talking about women there. Youth suppress my people and women rule over them. When you see young people and women leading, it means something's broken in a culture. Something's terribly wrong because that's not the way God designed it. God designed for men to be the ones that die, that give their life and surrender. He goes on to say, my people, your leaders mislead you. They confuse the direction of their path. The Lord brings this charge against the elders and leaders of his people. You've devastated the vineyard the vineyard that the Proverbs 31 woman planted. She planted it, and you idiot men ruined it. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. Why do you crush my people and grind the faces of the poor? This is the Lord's declaration of the Lord of hosts, Lord God of hosts. The Lord also says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, walking Haughty, not haughty, sorry. Haughty, walking with heads held high and seductive eyes, going along with prancing steps, jingling their ankle bracelets. The Lord will put scabs on the heads of the daughter of Zion and the Lord will shave their foreheads bare. 
trying to get everybody to be attracted to you in all the wrong ways instead of the right ways like a Proverbs 31 woman. First Timothy, Paul writes this to Timothy, who is going to be taking over the church when Paul's gone. He says, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Boy, I wish we could get men to do that in our culture, and I wish I could be more of a man like that on a daily basis. Where are the men that will in every place, not just the safe places, lift up holy hands without anger or bitterness and be like, God, kill them all. Like, no, like, God, help me. I don't want to kill anybody, but if this is what has to be done for justice, then I'll participate in it. Where, where, where's the heart of men who cry out to God? Instead of expecting their women to do it while they're out doing their thing which is what we had in America. The man went to work and was a breadwinner and brought it home and mom took care of everything else. That's not biblical. It wasn't biblical 2,000 years ago. And Paul tells Timothy, you got to remind the men this is their responsibility. He goes on and says, also the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, and expensive apparel, but with good works as proper for women who affirm that they worship God. A woman should learn in silence with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Instead, she is to be silent. For Adam was created first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. Paul doubles down. So the same guy that said there's no distinction between Drew nor Greek, male nor female. By the way, Galatians was probably Paul's, one of his first letters he wrote. All these other ones we're reading are letters Paul wrote after Galatians. So they could accuse Paul of false prophecy very easily if they thought he was going against his first statement in Galatians about male and female. They could have easily said he's a false prophet right here. Because you said we're all equal. But see, they understood that wasn't what the passage was about. They knew how to do exegesis. Timothy knew how to do exegesis. I love this passage because it also says that Paul doesn't just refer back to some Old Testament law about men and women. Paul goes all the way back to the foundation of the earth before sin and says God created Adam and Eve separate and different and Adam was the one that had authority and was in charge of the garden and Eve was supposed to come under. First Timothy goes on to say this, But she will be saved through childbearing if she continues in faith, love, and holiness with good judgment. This is a passage that everybody gets freaked out about. Like, so I have to have kids to be saved? No. How, how, let me ask you. If Eve decided, I want to be selfish and I'm not going to have any children. And if I do have any children, I'm going to kill them all. What's the problem with that for us, where we sit right now? Messiah never comes. Jesus never comes. Oh, and by the way, a woman's choice to allow a man to impregnate her is risking her life every time. See, we've forgotten that in a modern age where most women don't die in childbirth. But back then, tons of women died in childbirth. And the more kids you had, the more chance it was you were dying. 
And women who lay down their life to bring life into the world, that give themselves willingly to their husbands and allow themselves to to have children. I'm not going to get into the whole birth control argument this morning. I have time for that. But I'm just telling you, women who have that kind of heart to say, I want to be a life giver, I want to risk my life, that shows faith, love, holiness, and good judgment. And that's what that passage means. Women who refuse to have children because they get in my way. They're, I'm trying to do my ministry. I'm trying to do my thing. God's got a call in my life. I got to do. Hold on. Now, can some women not bear children? Absolutely. But isn't it interesting that John the Apostle writes that there's no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. And John the Apostle, as far as we know, had no physical children. He was talking about spiritual children. And there have been many women who have been childless who have raised up spiritual children for eternity in faith, hope, holiness, and love. Genesis says this, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals and the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, there's always where it goes, exegesis, did God really say, you can't eat from the tree from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit... of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. That is not what God said. God said, don't eat it. He has said nothing about touching it. Now we're adding to scripture. Eve just did what? Eisegesis into the scripture. She just inserted something God didn't say. Satan knows it. So he says, no, no, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. God's holding out on you. God's not letting you be the person you can be. God doesn't want you to, to do what, what, what you have the right to do. He's being mean to you. That's our world today. That's why we reject the scriptures, because we look at God's laws and we go, oh, they're so burdensome. It's so burdensome to have someone who loves me, who gave his life for me to ask me to do something. What a burden. Leave me alone until you come back and then I can go to heaven and have the life you want me to have. Look at what this goes on to say. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit, ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Adam's one job was to keep and to cultivate the garden. He had one command to protect, don't eat from this tree. And Adam's standing there going, I just want to see what happens. And men have been doing that ever since. And at the heart of men is a desire to just want to step back and let somebody else die, not be the one that dies. And that's why God sent his son to be the one that died for us instead of just sitting back and saying, well, I'm God, you all deserve to die. He goes on and says, God said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children in anguish. Your desire will be for your husband. That doesn't mean she's going to want to like be intimate with him all the time. That would not be a curse. This is a curse, right? She's saying your desire is going to want to need to lead your husband, to tell him what to do. And it says, yet he will rule over you. 
And he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded, do not eat from, the ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made clothing out of skins for Adam and Eve and he clothed them. God had to cover them because they could not cover themselves. He gave them a body that was going to perish when they didn't have one that was going to perish. That's what happens here. It's like now there's going to be a consequence. And he says the consequence of death didn't come through Eve. The consequence of death came through Adam, which is why Jesus had to die. He goes on to say this, Colossians 3.16, Let the message about Messiah dwell richly among you. This is Paul writing to the Colossian, to the church in Colossia. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart towards God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, be submissive to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter towards them. Underline that in your Bible if you're a guy. Circle that and memorize it. You will need it. Because your tendency is going to be like Adam and blame Eve for everything and be bitter towards her when you agreed to die when you said, I do. That's what you agreed to. So many people are bitter towards the church. Why? Because they refuse to surrender their life to the church, the bride of Christ. We're all running around bitter. If we're going to speak, know when to speak and know when to be silent. These are things we've got to think about. Ephesians 5.21 says, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. I love that Paul writes that to the church in Ephesus. He says, first, you've got to be sure you're submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. You're not demanding someone submit to you. Will you submit to me? And you say, no, no. Are you all submitting to Christ first? Then he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Christ is. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Not in some things, in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. So you better know the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. Is that your heart? For women? Is your heart men for women to present them before God holy and blameless? Or is it for them to present themselves to you in a way you can use them? Because that's what pornography is. And Paul says, I want the men to want to give their lives. To be the chief leaders and dyers. Now, can we do that? No, that's why we need grace and we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do that on our own. And there is forgiveness if you failed. Praise God. He goes on. He says, in the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. Since we are members of his body, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound. Oh, yes, it is. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum it up, each of you is to love his wife as himself and the wife is to respect her husband. You are called a co-heir with Christ throughout Scripture in the New Testament. Someday you will be given a crown when you get to heaven. If you know Jesus, he will give you a crown. You know what you're going to do with that crown? The Bible says you're going to take it off and throw it back to him. 
Because you're going to realize, not mine, you did this. You see, the way we look at Christ in the church is the way we look at marriage. And if the church is there to give to me and to fill me up and I'm not giving myself to it, guess what kind of marriage you're going to have? You see, Paul is writing and he's saying this is a mystery. This idea of dying to ourselves, picking up our cross, seems so foolishness. It's foolishness. It's not. It's the path to how we get to surrendered lives. He goes on and says this, First Peter, so not only Paul, but Peter says, In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the Christian message, they may be won over without a message by the way their, their wives live. When they observe your pure and reverent lives. Just saw this happen in a church recently. A woman that I had all kinds of problems with when I was in that church. She was a thorn in my side. And I almost went after her one day, and thankfully the senior pastor looked at me and said, Matt, you have no idea what this woman's home life is like. You have no idea how she has stayed married to an abusive husband. That her sons stopped the physical abuse by stepping in and saying, Dad, if you do anything, you're done. And so he stopped physically abusing her, but continued to abuse her with his speech and his actions, made fun of her every time she went to church. I'm not saying you have to stay in that. Hear me out. But this woman actually believed this verse. And she lived it out. And it was a week before her husband passed that he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And she had more joy than you could ever see her have. That after, I think they were married 60 years, after 60 years of giving her life to this man, hoping that he would believe this verse and be saved, that it was worth living out this verse, it happened. I've never seen joy like that from her. She struggled with bitterness. She was ready to meet Jesus, and she just recently passed. Can you imagine the reunion in heaven when her husband got to heaven and said, my wife lived this out for me, and that's why I'm here. Thank you, Jesus. He goes on to say, your beauty should not consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold ornaments and fine clothes. Instead, it should consist of what is in the, inside the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very valuable in God's eyes. For in the past, the holy women put their hope in God, also beautified themselves in this way submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. By the way, the one time that Abraham listened to Sarah is why we still have a war going on between Jews and and the chosen people and Islam today. Because he had sex with someone, he listened to Sarah, he didn't say, no, I'm not cheating on you, no, I'm not having sex with another woman, that is not God's plan. God said, you are going to be the one. And instead of standing for that, Abraham said, fine, leave me alone, I'll sleep with Hagar. And Ishmael was born, and we still have a war to this day between Ishmael and Isaac and the branches of that until Jesus says, until he comes back. Now, do I listen to my wife? Absolutely. But I need to do good exegesis when I listen to my wife. And I hope my wife does good exegesis when she listens to me. Not eisegesis and read into it. Husbands in the same way. Live your, with your wives as an understanding of their weaker nature, yet showing them honor as cohorts of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. He's assuming that husbands are prayer warriors. Oh, and by the way, when he says weaker there, he's talking about like fine china, not like they're weaker as in they're worthless. He's saying your wife is fine china, you're a clay pot. You gotta handle them differently. 
Both are useful, both are necessary, but you don't take fine china to the well to draw water. Doesn't work well. He goes on, he says, now finally, all of you should be like-minded, sympathetic, showing love to believers, compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you can inherit a blessing. In other words, what are you speaking? At the end of all of this mess and people not doing what God says is your response to try to still tell people about Jesus and the blessing and to make him known. Peter says, 1 Corinthians, as we go back to the passage and wrap up, says this. Did the word of God originate from you? Or did it come from you, on, you know, the, or from you only? You know, one of the things that people say today is, I have a word from God. My question is, show me. Every time someone says, I got a word from God, I'm like, show me. Good. Show me. Let's open the Bible. Sh- show me your word. Show me his word. Well, no, no, I had a dream. I had a vision. I'm like, well, false prophets have a lot of dreams and visions. I'm not really trusting that. It might be true, might not, but I think I need to just let it play out. I'm not going to give my life for your dream or vision yet. Take me to the word. And he says, did it originate with you? Do you get to decide what God said or didn't say? And then he says, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. This is right after Paul says all that he just said about Women and men. He goes, you should recognize that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. How we speak in church, the order that God has placed. You should recognize, I'm not saying this, God himself is saying this. But if anyone ignores this, he will probably be, he'll be ignored. Because people will look at you and go, well, you don't believe the Bible. You don't believe all of it. You pick and choose the parts you want. You don't want the whole Bible. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy. And do not forbid speaking another language, but everything must be done decently and in order. Paul doubles down and he says, things have an order. Do you know the order of God? Do you know how it's supposed to work? And if you don't, lean into the Bible and figure it out. Because if you don't, you're going to be trapped like this. Second Timothy, but know the difficult times will come in the last days. Are we in the last days? Yes. How long have we been in the last days? 2,000 years. I think we're in the last days. Oh, I know we're in the last days. I'm positive of it. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. They won't do reconciliation. Slanderers, They won't have any self-control. They're brutal, without love for what is good. Traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness. They won't give up God. Oh, no, 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 no. They hold to a form of godliness, but it's their form. It's their eisegesis, not the exegesis. For among them, I'm sorry, holding to a form, denying God's power. Avoid these people. For among them are those who worm their way into households and capture idle women burdened down with sins, led along by a variety of passions. They're going to go after the wives. Just like Genesis, Satan went after Eve. And we as men have got to stop stepping off and stepping to the side and watching what happens. And we've got to step up and speak the truth. 
He goes on, always learning, never able to come to knowledge of truth. Just as James and Jambres resisted Moses, these people also resist the truth. Men who are corrupt in mind, worthless in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress. For their lack of understanding will be clear to all, as theirs was also. But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with persecutions and sufferings. In fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. Evil people and imposters will become worse. That's false prophets, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believe. You know those who taught you, and you know that from childhood you've known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And you want to know who Timothy was taught the scriptures by? Two women. His dad didn't teach him, as far as we know. It was his grandma and his mom who taught Timothy to do proper exegesis and taught him to be a real man. It's possible. And it's Paul that's writing to Timothy to remind him of that. Now, this is some hard teaching. Paul lays all this out. He's answered a bunch of questions. He's gone through this passage If you read all the scriptures, it couldn't be more clear the way things are supposed to work and the order God has and why he has it. I've not even covered all the bases, but I've tried to cover a lot. But here's what's absolutely vital for us to understand. The next thing Paul says after he gives this teaching is 15.1. Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you unless you believe for no purpose. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Paul says, look, I've given you a bunch of answers to complex problems. I've given you a bunch of guides of the way things are supposed to work. But at the end of the day, don't forget the gospel. Don't take all these side issues and run with them as this is the hill you're going to die on. Don't do it. Die for Christ. That's the hill you go to. Does that mean we don't stand up for these truths? We don't explain to people why we believe those things? No, we do. But at the end, Paul says, I know what you guys are going to do. You're going to try to take all these things and make those the most important things of the church. They're not. The most important thing in the world and in the church is are we representing Christ? Are we making him known? And that includes his order of things as husbands, as wives, as male, as female, as Jew, as Greek. It means understanding how he's ordered things. Because if you don't understand that, you're going to be really surprised when you get to heaven and there's a lot of orders. And God has ordered things in heaven. And when he restores the land of the promise to his promised children around Jerusalem and you don't get a piece of it, you might be a little offended. Because why are they so special? Because that's my order. That's what I'm choosing to do because I'm God. Why don't you celebrate and aren't you grateful for it? So let me ask you this morning. These are hard teachings. I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you struggle with being a man, struggle with being a woman. I don't know if you struggle with how do I speak? When do I be silent? Like all of that. Can I just tell you, look at the gospel. Look at the person of Jesus. They wanted Jesus to be silent and he spoke. They wanted him to speak and he was silent. 
because he followed his God. This morning, God may be speaking to you through his word. I encourage you, if you've not surrendered your life to Jesus, that's what Paul's writing this letter for. It's to say, stop living for you and stop trying to chase all the rights and the things that the world tells you you deserve, like Satan told the first humans, and instead, come under the authority of God. And the Bible says if you do that, he will forgive you. He will give you new life. He will give you the power of the Holy Spirit. He will give you a family. And you can become someone you never thought possible because he will change you. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Lord, this is a pretty big thing. Lord, I've done my best to just give people the scripture this morning. To just lay out your word. I don't want to Jesus. I just want to exegesis and show people the beauty of who you are and your order and the way you do things. And Lord, I pray that we would have humble hearts when we look at that, hearts that surrender ourselves, not hearts that demand our rights. But Lord, I pray that we would be people that would be bold enough to demand your right over everything. And so Father, this morning there may be those online or those in this room that don't know you, and I pray today be the day they surrender. They just be done. No more fighting, no more chasing all the things, but to just say, you know what? I've been silent for far too long before God. I'm done being silent and I just want to speak and I want to say, God, please help. And when you say that from the heart, God says, that's all, that's it. You just surrender. You believe that Jesus is who he says he is. You believe God is who he says he is. You believe his word is the word of God. And when that happens, He says he will come into your life and he will never leave you and never forsake you, that you will have his grace, his unmerited favor, and you will have a home in heaven that you now have died to yourself and you have a new citizenship and a new life and a new birth that God is now going to mature you in. And Lord, I pray that there be people who pray that prayer this morning. And Lord, for those of us who are believers, I, take, I pray that we would take seriously the order that you have. We would take seriously how you created us, male and female. We would take seriously what the word says. And Lord, we wouldn't be legalistic with it. We wouldn't beat people up with it. But we would understand your word, that we would hold it humbly. And Lord, I specifically pray for the men in this room. Lord, I pray that the young men and the men listening online would be your men that they would surrender their lives to be men that women can trust. And when they fail, they would repent so they could be men that women could look to you to trust. And Lord, for the women in this room, I pray that they would take this to heart. Lord, I pray that they would see that they can surrender their life to you and that you will meet them where they're at. And they may not have done a good job of this. They may not know how to do this, but I thank you that your word guides us. And when they get it wrong, they will have your love and your grace. And so, Lord, change the order. Bring peace into our lives. Your peace that passes understanding, we pray. Amen.